Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is the definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed his dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. This is part two in our conversation with filmmaker Simon Barrett, and we are going to pick things up right where we left off in the previous episode, which is we are talking with Simon about his almost was version of the Korean thriller, I Saw the Devil. Do you remember any of the other, like, you know, what were some of the bigger deviations you had planned for the second half, other than you mentioned that he was going to kind of be dismembering him more? Well, I mean, to a certain extent, I, 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 I think it may have been like, like too much of a compromise because I didn't like we, we were trying, you know, in the original, uh, there's a lot of collateral damage to his to his revenge quest. I mean, women are being assaulted. Uh, he ultimately gets his, you know, uh, spoiling the original here, he ultimately gets his, like, sister-in-law to be killed. Um, and then he gets revenge on the guy, on Train and Six Killer, because it turns out he, like, really loves his son. 
kind of hastily introduced to decapitates him in front of his son, you know, has his son kind of do it. And it's like, you know, okay, that's, that's very good for what the story this is telling, which is he wants the final shot to be like, leave going here and totally broken. But, you know, I was kind of like, there's different ways that this guy could be broken and, and show that he's developing like a codependent relationship with this killer where he like can't let him die. Cause as soon as he dies, all that's left is grief. Um, so without giving too much away at the end of the film, it, it, we posited the notion that he was going to torture this guy forever. Um, that he was, you know, kind of more of a secret in their eyes kind of ending um, where he just was kind of never going to let him really ever fully go. Um, but, but, and, 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 and that like, he really had embraced like this, this notion that like, you know, that was his one shot at happiness and now it's gone. So this is what his life's going to, going to be. It's just going to be revenge. And, and you see that he still has a relationship with his, you know, father-in-law to be and sister-in-law to be, but that they're kind of alienated from him. Um, so in other words, I wanted to show that his revenge quest was a completely successful one. Um, but, you know, one that left him, you know, completely alienated from anything that he would have wanted his life to be. And, and also, you know, because what are we really ultimately saying with these movies? You know, I mean, I think there is something very powerful to the notion that like horrible things can happen to you. And, you know, and today, you know, you could be listening to this podcast and, and something truly terrible could happen in your life that you would have no control over that would just like, you would have to restart as a person. The amount of grief and, and loss you would experience would require like a, a reset of your personality. And, and I think there is catharsis in cinema through, you know, the constant terror that we all have that, you know, we're all one car accident away from like losing everything we care about, you know, everyone we care about. And, and life is so fragile, you know? And, and I think, you know, to get through the terror and anxiety that we, we do, we do often turn to cinema. And I think there is like a great stuff in there, but I, I did ultimately, I think just want it to be a lot more fun throughout. I wanted essentially kind of the tone of the first half to just match the tone of the second half more, which again, that sounds, I think, less creatively exciting, but that's why we were kind of happy that like, we at, at least tangentially had, you know, Kim Ji-Woon's blessing to be like, oh yeah, you 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 want to you think you have a different idea of, of where this could go, you know, take it there. And and so it was much more elaborate, you know. At one point, he picks up, um, you know, like like his, the female serial killer, thinking she's one of the victims um, of of the of the cannibal kind of group that runs the hotel. Um, you know, it, it was it was fairly elaborate. I mean, you know, the movie sets up that there's kind of like a network of serial killers. That's what I was going to ask about. Hmm. Yeah, we, we wanted to lean into all that, that there, there was kind of a network of these kind of transient guys who don't really get along, but can kind of reach out and help each other out. Um, and especially in America where, you know, state governments don't really talk to each other. And, and I think it's very easy to be a serial killer as long as you're, certain, as long as you're transient and don't have develop certain patterns. Not that we do that that much anymore because mass killings are kind of the current cultural, uh, you know, like terror thing. Um, but, but, you know, which are, you know, also I think hard to, prosecute in their own ways um it, it's 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 always once you dig into the legality of all this stuff it's it's it, it gets just like very dark and depressing but um but yeah we were kind of trying to do like a serial killer universe i was um, gonna say it's almost like pre-john wick you know yeah uh, there was a little world building that i that i kind of like leaned into and stuff like that and you know again adam and i you know had started like working together doing a serial killer movie um, you know, that was based on the fact that we'd both read a lot about like Ted Bundy and stuff and his relationships. 
um, you know, what's it, The Stranger Beside Me by uh, Anne Rule or whatever, you know, we both read that for, for like enjoyment. Um, so, you know, so we, we've given this like a lot of thought and I think just, you know, being from rural parts of the country, that's the stuff that's like you're, you're kind of scared of the most when you're a kid. Um, so we were excited about doing like another circular thing, but yeah, we wanted it to be more just big and fun and, and crazy and, and a movie that like people could really you know, that was really going to be dark and unsettling, but that people also were kind of like having a lot of fun with, which again, I think like the first I saw the devil really has just this incredible tone because it looks so cool and the actors are so cool. You know, we really were trying to figure out like, what is the American version of this? Um, and, you know, but, but I don't really think ultimately we had anything that different or that new to say, which is why ultimately I'm kind of glad that it didn't get made even though it was a pretty crushing and time-consuming process. Because, you know, I don't really know that there is a reason for our version of I Saw the Devil to exist when the original does exist and you can watch it anytime. And so, you know, even though I think I was able to convince myself otherwise while I was working on it, with years of clarity, like everything I'm saying to you right now, none of that sounds like the words of like a passionate person who like <laughs> needs his version of a story told. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, it, it doesn't. I'd rather... The truth of it is I'd rather write something original that captures that same feeling or vibe or energy of I Saw the Devil, which is a movie that I love, but I'd rather take the creative things that that movie sparked in me and use them to tell a completely different story, um, whatever that is, you know, but but that's a harder sell. <laughs> I forget if you what you said before, uh, if you said before, um, did did this get as far as a script or was this all kind of like pitching and out? Oh, I saw the devil had multiple drafts. Multiple, um, okay. Yeah. I would say I did probably 10 drafts of that script, you know, mostly, most of them just kind of, wow, you know, under the books, <laughs> you know, under the table, off the books, however you phrase that. Um, just kind of trying to get it polished in various ways. Yeah. You know, well, look, I mean, my first draft, you know, especially writing something like that, you know, I kind of wanted to put it out there. Like my first draft is not going to be perfect. Because, you know, just, just what we're doing here is, is tricky, remaking like a great movie. Um, so, you know, so my first, I would say like, I would say it probably took me like three drafts to get a version that everyone was really happy with. You know, Adam, Adam has always said he thought that was like, I don't think he feels that way anymore, but at the time he felt that was my best script. Um, and, and, you know, because, but again, it was the first time I, I had also written a script where I wasn't trying to like keep the budget under five million. So, you know, I was like, oh, we can do big stuff. Mm. um so you know i don't know i don't know i i don't i don't think it's my best script uh but but yeah it took me it took me a few tries to get it right um and then after that you know it was about like oh can we you know downsize this can we trim down the violence can we can we adjust this can we adjust that like little little kind of things you know kind of depending on where we were trying to sell it you know what studio we were trying to get it but again i mean i think i think there were studios that really wanted to make I Saw the Devil with Adam attached, but we just could never, we could never make the right deal at the right time. And until ultimately, I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think the producer could still make that movie anytime they wanted to. Um, but I think, I think they've kind of agreed that it's like maybe best to just be known as the filmmakers <laughs> that I guess like euthanized that remake rather than actually made it, you know? Sometimes we're the people that just like put projects down. It is. I guess I had never again just keep thinking of living in this bubble. I I didn't even know. I guess that that 
the original was unsuccessful upon its release here. Because that was kind of flop in every country. Yeah, that's interesting. Because uh, that was that was definitely yeah. part of that initial kind of post old boy wave of like Korean releases in the U.S. Where I, you know people like me who are not that familiar with Korean cinema all of a sudden were kind of like obsessed with their their genre films. Mm-hmm. Most of which seem to be revenge movies based on based on what was I'm sure because of what did well before they just kept re re releasing in the U.S. all the uh, Korean revenge thrillers. Well, I mean, even the even the very early kind of I guess whatever you'd call this, you know, new kind of Korean blockbuster new wave or whatever this kind of post 1990s phase that we're in because because I remember one of the very first Korean movies that kind of did very well at this time was Tell Me Something. And that was what, 97, 98? And that was like a really gory circular movie. That was around the same time that Attack the Gas Station came out and mm-hmm. uh, Park Chan-wook was doing joint security area the next year. So so those like, so there was always, interestingly in Korea, there was always like these like gory, violent serial killer movies that would like reach blockbuster status. Uh, the Chaser being a, a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, I remember Shiri coming out that was like supposed to be like this, the huge that's more of an action movie but that i remember that was like mm-hmm. putting them on the on the map that they're trying to make bigger movies Shuri was their biggest grossing film until joint security area you know um, and then and then and then it was like a new one every year i think yeah because Shuri Shuri was after tell me something and that was a glossy one it was like Shuri was trying mm-hmm. to be like a, that was trying to be like mainstream gloss and I don't remember anything about that movie, although I, I have Neither seen do it. I. I. Yeah, I know. I watched it when it came out because of all the hype about it. And I was like, yeah, very forgettable. But whereas I absolutely remember the scene and tell me something where a group of people in an elevator realized the garbage bag that's in the elevator with them is full of dead body parts. Um, <laughs> you know, so. Th- so, I mean, you know, it, it, it's I, I guess all I'm saying is like there's more of a, a you know, I, I think there was more of a cultural market in Korea for like adult thrillers than there is than there was in the US at that time. And that's why I think we were all kind of drawn to those things because you know the US in, in, in Hollywood, you know, we've kind of started making blockbusters, you know, in a more kid-friendly way. It's very rare that like a you know an R-rated blockbuster kind of passes through now. But in Korea, you have essentially a film like I Saw the Devil is a like X-rated blockbuster. It's like an NC-17 movie that like looks better than like any movie ever has, you know. <laughs> It's in, and, and it's made in, in such a quality way. And the truth is that's just, that's just not an easy thing to translate to an American studio system that is, you know, trying to market their films to kind of all people, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, yeah. like, like, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a, you know, I mean, that's truthfully, it is, is, you know, there is a cross-cultural element to the movies we make, you know, like right now I'm working on some big movies that I want to make sure do play to like kids in every country and if that means that like my sarcastic sense of humor isn't going to survive, you know, like, like that's, that's, that's fine. Cause you know, it doesn't play everywhere, you know, like, and, and, you know, it's, it's about kind of finding what that voice is then. But yeah, with something like I saw the devil, it really is just one of these things that like that movie could only have been made, I think by one filmmaker at one point in time, at one point in his career with those two stars. And even then, it was not well received anywhere. <laughs> um, mm. It's just a film that we've all kind of gradually, you know, it was very beloved by like, I think horror fans and, and, you know, the online critics and stuff at, at the time of its release. But yeah, no, it was, it was not, um, it was not a success for Magnolia um, theatrically or disc wise. 
it was it was a big disappointment. I think you know I think look I think part of the problem is you know the art house crowd don't necessarily gravitate towards like violent material and horror fans aren't necessarily going to go go out and see something with subtitles all the time uh, or be aware of it until it comes out on video. So you know it, it is it's hard. It's 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 like I don't know why you know there's not more of a market in the US for like great foreign cinema but I also I guess I kind of do because I don't really know where people would consume it other than streaming services. Yeah, it was like a must watch on Netflix when it was out. You know, it was just. I was going to say, yeah, it, it seems to have know. aged into being a classic because it played at oh, the, yeah. the new Beverly Cinema a few months ago. And for listeners who don't live in LA, that's the long running theater that Quentin Tarantino famously rescued when it was closing several years ago. And now runs and programs lovingly. Um, but, you know, they're kind of bread and butter are double features uh, that mostly just play one day. And then, you know, for kind of bigger classic films that they figure are drawing an audience, it'll play two, three days, you know, like there will be blood or, you know, it's the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, and I saw the devil. I thought it was interesting when I looked at their calendar and I was playing two days and I was like, oh, so they must think uh, that, that there's an audience for it. It's not just a one day. Oh, I mean, you know, it's weird whenever you get one of these projects announced, because of course I have projects that have, you know, like I've worked on for years and have never come to fruition and no one really remembers them or ever talks about them. They're just like things that like live on in a recess of my mind. But with I Saw the Devil, it was announced. Like, so instantly people were asking us about it and, and talking to us about it. So I can tell you for certain that that movie has a huge fan base. Uh, <laughs> it's not just us. Like, it, like people love that movie. But, you know, but it is, it, it is a... It's a minority of, I think, like hardcore film fans, you know, and and that's not, you know, that's not what we needed to target with the scope of the kind of movie we wanted to make. I mean, the truth is, if you wanted to make I Saw the Devil in the U.S., if you were making that exact film, you would have a hard time finding a big budget, and, and you know, even with big movie stars, just because of the content. And 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 we'll we'll leave it at that. But I mean. I don't really know what's going to change about that because I don't see movies getting, I don't see movies for adults really making like a mainstream comeback based on kind of who's financing movies now and, and what the streaming model is. You know, there's no, there's no incentive for any streaming service to release shocking or objectionable content that could hurt them from, a, you know, an internet outrage and then shareholder value perspective. Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, what happened with Netflix and cuties, I, I, you know, the French movie that people decided was, was for pedophiles, which again, never saw, I can't vouch for the film itself, but, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I know that the campaign against that film, you know, actually like hurt their shares. And so why would they ever do that again? Why would they ever take a chance on a controversial movie like that again? Again, I can't, I can't argue in favor or against that film itself, but that is the kind of thing that when I see it, I'm like, oh, that's not great. Um, because, you know, if it's just shutter, you yeah. know, like, like taking a chance on extreme content, you know, like what is independent film? I mean, to me, independent film always was filmmakers trying to do the things that you could not do with mainstream entertainment, but now, you know, everything is kind of just trying to be that. So I'm not, I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, really. I think things just change, but you see that like from a marketing perspective and a cost perspective. I saw the devil has been not only proven to be a, a, a unsuccessful from a financial perspective, but also like, yeah, it's like who would make this now? Like who would say we were making this for, you know, 30 million and we had, you know, 
Keanu Reeves and Denzel Washington attached, it's it's still probably a movie that's going to lose a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, so, I as you know, I I I can't imagine the 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 initial Twitter reaction, or I can't imagine the initial Twitter reaction. I should say, uh, if this movie had come out now, especially if it was released by a major studio with big North American stars in it. Um, well, I was also going to say. Know, anything we'd watered down on would have been considered a compromise if people would have hated it. I mean, this is the truth of it. Like, I think there are certain filmmakers that kind of, it seems like critics just kind of enjoy them on a personal level. And, and, and uh, I don't think Adam and I are those filmmakers. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and I think, um, I, I don't think people are necessarily inclined to give us the benefit of the doubt with our work. Uh, though I could be, I, you know, that could be just be me having a chip on my shoulder. I know certainly critics have been quite kind to our films, and I'm very grateful, uh, obviously, for the fan base that you're next and the guests have developed. But mostly, I think people, you know, the jury is still out on whether or not we're idiots as filmmakers. I, I think people like, cannot <laughs> tell still. I think like the sense of humor that like clearly kind of evolved from your next to the guest was helpful, and that people were like, oh, they were definitely joking with this earlier one. Now we get that. But then we didn't follow it up with anything. We followed it up with Blair Witch, which just completely confused everyone. And so now I think, you know, I think if we were to make I Saw the Devil, I think people would just be, people would just compare it unfavorably to the first film. And, and, and again, and I'm not totally certain they'd be wrong to do so. If I, if I was not involved, I would probably be on the side of like, why do this? Quit fucking up our, <laughs> our beloved movies. You know, I don't think that's an invalid perspective. Mm. Uh, I was also going to say to listeners, at least at the time of recording this, I saw The Devil is available on Tubi, which is a, Hell yeah. Hell a, great, yeah. a great service. All the that is one on where Tubi. I, I would say you really, if you don't own a disc release of I Saw the Devil, you, you are doing yourself a disservice because some of the most shocking stuff is in the deleted scenes. Um, and because it was released in different versions all over the world, like 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 France and England got dip scenes that we didn't, and we got a lot of scenes that Korea didn't. Um, you know, it, it is interesting to go through the disc and and look at all the different versions of that movie that have kind of come out in different places. Like oh, what okay. what what offended the censors and what in which countries? Because <laughs> we did not get a fully uncut version in the US. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. But the but the disc but the no well I, I believe our release version is what Kim Ji Woon says is closest to his preferred cut. But we're missing some sex scenes that were in the European version, some violent sex scenes. And I'm not sure which version's on Tubi. I, I assume it's the U.S. cut. Yeah. Again, it would be again the U.S. cut is what Kim Ji Woon says is closest to what he really wanted. It's just we we our version is slightly censored, hmm. but it's not cut the way that it was in Korea, where they had to cut like huge chunks of the movie to to because of a you know a censorship uh, dealing with cannibalism. Well, I know Korea, I remember uh, um, the star of Old Boy and I saw the devil. He like temporarily retired because he was protesting something where they like limit how many shows a movie can have or something like that. Well, I I mean, I I can't speak to that. I do remember that he I know he's political. I know he did take like a long hiatus. Um, I think if anything, it it was actually that he was protesting that, that they were like opening it up to maybe more international movies and and he was trying to like be like no like we should be investing more in korean film um but i, I could be totally mistaken he could no, i think you're protesting. right i think it was they were doing that by utilizing this like weird law that i think was like a british 
holdover that has something where they like limit they're like legally yeah. limiting like the out, output of a movie which yeah which was maybe to make more room for international releases in south korea i wonder if that's it yeah i know that you know i know that certain countries have certain quotas in like either direction and obviously you know like a place like hong kong when it was a british colony uh, they were expected to, you know, release movies with like English subtitles, which is how we get all those great kung fu movies translated <laughs> into English and stuff. You know, I know there are, and, and there are certain restrictions, and like I know France will only play a certain amount of foreign films compared to local content. I think he was advocating for something closer to what France has, which is just like more of a more of an advocacy for local content, but. I really don't know. And not only, not only do I not know <laughs> like sp the specifics of what he was protesting, I don't even understand the politics whatsoever. So yeah, I'm sure my we explanation should we should probably delve deeper on this full of holes. Yeah, yeah. We should, yeah, we should, <laughs> we should, we should definitely weigh in on how we feel about the yeah. thing that you may or may not have been protesting and, and set it in stone. Um, uh, we invite listeners who are curious to yeah. look that up on their own, find out yeah, what's going really on. It, 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 it's not our job as a podcast to educate you about the subject <laughs> we're discussing. Um, um, really quick, I found back in 2012 you were part of a project called Dead Spy Running that oh, was, shit. Yeah. that just kept getting passed around by different directors. Um, well, you know, there's there's all these weird projects that Adam and I have been attached to for like a second, and and that was a weird one because like. Again, we we had our we had our kind of Skull Island meetings, uh, and here like, was the Skull. Well, we can get to Skull Island after. It was this, around this. the same time. It was it was your next opened some interesting kind of doors for us. Where like like some studio executives, I think, saw that like Adam was a real director, even though he'd only made like a couple small horror movies. Like like so, this was pre the guest, um, and and oddly, one of the people who really liked your next was was you know a personal hero of ours. Or I should say, two personal heroes, uh, Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson, um, who you know, I mean, I can't emphasize enough how much I like watched Peter Jackson's like first four or five movies growing mm -hmm. up. Like they meant they meant everything to me. Um, so you know, so that was really humbling and cool. But yeah, but we were having these studio projects that, like, for whatever reason, they weren't getting off the ground. Um, we were even attached to like a Buffy reboot for like a hot minute, and like as and a then, feature. As a feature, yeah, and and then I think the word the word that we got was that Joss Whedon kind of wouldn't support that, and and you know so we, so so our condolence prize was we kind of ended up, you know I think God it was our agents at CAA at the time were like there's this like spy novel they've been trying to develop it forever like you guys you guys are the ones that can figure this out and you know this, the novel is pretty straightforward but the studio wanted him to be a DJ because like electronic music was popular and right then we should have just been like we did actually pass on this a few times we we're like we we're like guys we just don't like we do think we know what you're talking about but we just don't think we're the right people for this um and really that was one where our agents really convinced us to do it and and because of that i i have not worked with those agents since um and i and i and i and i do not have agents to this day because i like to this day i think that's kind of what an agency like ca does is they you know, they 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 convince you to take a job, but you don't really know the reasons why, and that and you're not necessarily going to have a good experience. You know, and and look, that's better than that's better than a lot of situations I've been in. But if I can avoid that, I will. Um, and so you know, so that was so that was tough because because you know that was that was a project that where there, there was already a draft. Um, gosh, who was it? I think it was um, uh, it, Stephen Knight had done a draft. Yeah, um, and. 
And, you know, so, you know, very highly paid screenwriter had, had developed this and, you know, the script just didn't quite work, but we were getting it there. And then the big set piece was a bombing at a marathon and I turned in my rewrite, which I was grinding on, on the day of the Boston marathon. (laughs) Like it was literally like that day. And we just got the response that was just like, well, right away, we think we have a problem with the marathon, which was like, I kid you not, it was like 30 to 40 pages of like a 120 page script was this like, like elaborate marathon set piece where there's like a guy, there's multiple runners in the marathon who've been rigged with suicide vests that they themselves don't want to be wearing. And our hero, who's not in terrific shape, is having to run throughout the marathon to try to like, like basically save these guys. Um, it was a very fun set piece. It was exactly the kind of thing that Adam and I love, which is like a, a protagonist dealing with like some like clearly established limitations in a scene that has a certain momentum to it, like an actual physical momentum. You know, the scene itself was never going to like drop below, you know, I don't know, like six miles an hour. You know, it just it just couldn't. Um, you know, and, and so it was something I'd worked really hard on, and, and ultimately it just died. But it was also one of those things where, like, I remember, I remember like Zac Efron was being talked about as like a potential lead for that. And I think the studio, I think the two things that killed us were the Boston Marathon bombing which was a totally valid, just like one of these bad luck things where it's like, can we do it somewhere other than a marathon? It was like, sure, sure we can, but, but, but I don't think that's a, a journey that we're going to join you on. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, they did put out a Zac Efron DJ movie that was called like, we are, we are your friends. Oh, or, yeah. And, and mm. I think, I think it made like truly no money. No, that was almost um, like a record setting bomb or something. If I recall. Yeah, I think, I, I think, I think for what it cost and what it made, it is one of those ri- movies that like back when the trades used to do like the biggest financial mm-hmm. loser of the year, which I, is, was my favorite thing that the trades did, <laughs> <laughs> but they don't do it anymore. Cause it's cause, because yeah, that makes the people that own them look bad. Um, it, so we used to have these lists of like all the biggest losses and I think it was one of them. And, and, and so, and basically like, his interest in doing, I think, Deads by Running was pivoted to that other project. And when that other project was a massive loser for the studio, um, we got really killed. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, yeah. So so it was weird, yeah, because we had our Kong Stan thing fall apart. And then, at, and then at Warner Brothers, we had our kind of Buffy thing fall apart, which again, we were like, we were very kind of excited about those projects creatively. We then got a third project that we weren't creatively excited about that our agents just kind of convinced us was, you know, going to be a winner that we could turn into a winner. And really, I think the perspective at the studio level was just like the the executives were like, oh, this filmmaking team has a bit of a green light. What can we attach them to? You know, like, like these other, they've been attached to these things that have fallen apart for reasons outside of their control. What can we put them on, you know, that, that they'll, that they can push forward. And and Mick G was attached to produce it, so we had all these meetings with Mick G, who's absolutely a fucking delight. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have I have not I have nothing negative to say about Mick G. He, he would just walk in the room, cheer us all up, walk out. It was clear he didn't quite remember what project he was talking about. You know, mm-hmm. like like you know, it's it clear they just brought him in just for like pitches because he's just so high energy. But he was great. I mean, he he created he like worked uh worked with Adam on his sizzle reel. <laughs> like 
you know, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was not like without its good times, but wait, what was this yeah. third thing? Or is it something you can't say the, no, no, this is, the, I'm talking about Dead by Running. Oh, this here. is still dead. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I think there. he was this attached makes... to direct before you guys came on. I, I believe he was, he was, yeah. yeah, he was attached to the Stephen Knight version. And then, but then he was, he himself was kind of like, yeah, I don't know if I want to direct that much anymore. I think the only thing he's directed since then was that babysitter movie, maybe um because I, I think at the time he was kind of like no i'm getting more into like doing stuff like this like producing and you know not not working <laughs> and we were like all right like you know i mean again mcgee as far as i could tell um would have been purely an asset as a producer he really seemed like he was supportive of our vision and uh happy to be there um so i don't i didn't have any negative times with him uh unfortunately because that'd be a funnier story how far but, did uh, you get into the buffy process Pretty far. I mean, again, there was no script on that one. You know, I did do, I did write a Butch Casting the Sundance Kid sequel for Pablo Lorraine. There's <laughs> a script for that one. That's wow. a, that's a, that that's one that I'm sorry to say that that I was sorry to see go. Maybe maybe Pablo will dig that up one of these days. He's got a he's he's got a good career. Um, but uh, yeah, like there was never a draft on Buffy. We were just kind of like, I think after your next, you know, after your next, we got offered like a bunch of home invasion thrillers and horror remakes. But there were a couple of things we got offered where like you could see the DNA, you could see the studios, what the studio was thinking in terms of like our creative DNA, like, oh, you're next, like badass female protagonist. Let's see if these guys have a take on Buffy. Um, that that actually like we really were like, oh, are you kidding? Like, yeah, like we we would we have a take on Buffy. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't it wasn't always just like would you guys, you know, how how do you guys feel about like last toss on the left three? <laughs> like you know it, it, like some of the things we got offered were exciting and, and that was one of them where like we hadn't been chasing it but when it got brought up to us we were really like oh you know like this could be something really special uh you know because we loved the we loved the, the series and, and the original film and um you know and uh but we didn't get too far down the road we we kind of had a couple meetings where basically like the next step would have been to like send me off to write a script. Um, and at that point, we just kind of got the word that the studio wasn't that excited about it anymore. Because uh, cause I think the whole situation is like the TV rights are separate from the film rights. Um, but but this is right when Joss Whedon was doing like the original adventures and, and became like very briefly like the biggest director in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there was just this sense of like, well, why would we piss off Joss Whedon? <laughs> what was but your take like, on it? We didn't have them that, that I mean, we really didn't have that exciting of a take other than that. We thought we could do kind of like, you know, set it in college, um, like, like make it more, make it like we had more of a, uh, we had more of a violent, funny thing. We liked, we liked the Luke Perry character a lot um, from the original film and thought there was a good way to kind of like, you know, redo that romance um, where where you know he's constantly kind of the damsel in distress in, in that film he's feeling that like this like very old archetype of like the of like kind of being like a hapless love interest we wanted to take that a little further <laughs> um <laughs> but you know again i like like there wasn't anything really that exciting about our premise you know it it was going to be you know I, I, like a, a midwestern campus you know that's in, you know getting murdered having a series of murders and you know, she tracks it down to the, you know, the powers that be in town and, you know, standard kind of vampire lost boys kind of narrative. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't think we actually, I, I remember we had some set piece pitches 
like a fun one in the library. Um, you know, we don't want one of those like, you know, shelves as dominoes kind of sequences, but it was all, yeah, again, it was all like stuff on the first film. I mean, now talk about one where, by the way, I'm sure anything we'd done at that point in time would have pissed off everyone involved in the fan base. <laughs> but we were a little like, we were a little like stars in our eyes at that time. We were like, it, and it was a bit of that, like, well, no one other than us should ever do anything with this. Like we're the right people. Um, you know, I think really quickly, you know, the conversation with something like that would have been like, well, why not give this to, you know, female creators if it's a female driven story, in which case we would have been like, yep, probably true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yep, probably, probably very, probably very correct. We'll be, uh, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be leaving through that door. Um, but, uh, but, you know, at, at, again, at this point in time, you know, it, it was just a project that I think had kind of gone stale uh, and I guess went back to being stale. <laughs> Hmm. Um, but I think, I think, it, I think, I mean, I, again, I don't, I, I can't speak out of turn, but I think, you know, in, in a situation like that, where someone like Joss Whedon has so thoroughly created the original and so clearly has no interest in ever revisiting it, you're kind of like, if you come in and, and do something without the original creators, like, like excitement or interest, uh, I, it, that does feel like kind of a negative starting point. So, so, you know, so it, it, it didn't go that far, but it was one of those things where like it went just far enough that the studio saw that we could successfully pitch to people that we could be put in a room and everyone would come out of that room and being like, yeah, actually those guys could probably do this. Um, and so our condolence prize was the DJ spy movie, <laughs> um, which I mean, again, was more probably ha probably had more to do with like, you know, a conversation between our agents and the studio executive than like, you know, any actual real creative excitement on anyone's uh, side of things. So, you know, that's one of those ways that you learn to actually navigate success and the opportunity success affords you. And you realize that like, oh yeah, turning things down is as important as saying yes to the right things. Like, like you have to learn to say no to things too. Um, and that was, cause that was something we, again, we passed on a bunch of times. Everyone kept saying like, we feel like you guys are just really going to nail it. And we convinced ourselves that we're like, oh, I guess this is like our James Bond. And, and it's like, well, no, this is a big waste of our time. Where yeah. does Skull Island factor? And uh... it was even like before all this, I think, because um, because it was because that was really just a series of meetings. That was such a crazy thing where like we didn't even know what we were meeting on. We were taken to like the secure room, and then like it's like a live feed. To, Wait, like, where was the room? It was in like a like a locked office in like the Universal lot, as I remember, and it was like a, it was like it was like our way to talk to Peter Jackson on video. It's like before you know Zoom or FaceTime really took off, and I mean we were just so humbled. Um, you know, I mean he's you know he's he's such a legend, and Fran is so cool, and they're both so warm. You know that you're you're you know you, you instantly feel like you're kind of in a safe creative space. So you know we started jamming on that. It's funny Adam actually corrected me on that. I was like. That's gonna be like World War II rising. No, man, that was like our that was the height of our World War One obsession, which we have a World War One project that's in the works. Um, you know, and so which we've been working on since year next. Um, and so like so he I actually didn't remember a lot of those details. I think I was just too intimidated to be talking to Peter <laughs> Jackson and Fran Walsh, honestly. Um we had some cool ideas. I mean, it was World War One. It, it a lot of it is kind of you know, in the Skull Island movie that ultimately was made uh, by Jordan Roberts with like a different team, like it just completely, like they they took it like in a in a completely kind of different direction with the era and stuff. But like 
it was, you know, it was, it was the gist of it. Like, I think my thing, I think I had some like idea that they were going there because the unique like uh, flora of Skull Island, like they believed like could cure all these diseases. Um, just like how there was unique fauna there. Like, like it was all like about finding like certain plants that like had been, you know, hundreds of thousands of years extinct in the rest of the world and like what those plants meant for like our medical discoveries. But I mean, that's just the same lazy half-ass thing that's in a hundred of these movies. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, like that was my particular, I think, entry point for what they were doing there and why, but like, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I probably stole that from like Godzilla versus Megalon. <laughs> and was this going to be, I mean, it was, if Jackson was involved, I have to assume that this was supposed to be connected to his version. Yeah. So this, Kong. this would have been in like his King. I mean, I think ultimately that was kind of why it didn't happen is I think like it would have been an expansion of kind of his King Kong Skull Island, which as you know, they created like entire art books of, of like Skull Island and all the creatures that he put on Skull Island and his King Kong. So it would have been basically an expansion of that world that he'd already established. And that's why it's kind of confusing to talk about now because with the, with the, you know, with Legendary's MonsterVerse and where they have ultimately taken King Kong uh, with Adam subsequently making Godzilla versus Kong and now this next one, it is kind of hard for me to remember <laughs> this like alternate universe version of this, especially now that Adam is literally making King Kong movies. Uh, it's, it's really confusing that there was this like alternate timeline version. Uh, but ultimately all we really got out of it is, is I think I technically still have Peter Jackson's email address. <laughs> yeah, still gotta cool. hold on to that for the right yeah moment. i know we gotta wait for the right moment yeah gotta wait for our world war one project to be like like green light and then be like hey do you have like 50 tanks that we can borrow <laughs> do you, you you have like a museum or two don't you anyway <laughs> wait steve i feel like you were about to say something oh no um no, I just had one one more thing i'm not sure if you could talk about this but i found, i saw that you were gonna do a techno thriller oh yeah techno thriller so that's funny because then you that kind of makes you think of dead spy running but um that was just fede's way of phrasing it that's that's you know that's my latest i guess that's my latest heartbreak um i mentioned i mentioned like the weird you know butch cassidy the sundance kid sequel and and you know they've been there have been things over the years that like you know i feel like i did a really good job on i saw the devil probably being a strong example where I feel like I did really good work and you do get kind of sad that like only six people will ever see it. And like four of those people just be pissed off because it not matter how much it's going to cost. <laughs> um, and, and one of those things is uh, Fede Alvarez, when he was putting together his new production company um, with Roto Saigas, his, his partner, uh, Bad Hombres, you know, they, they did a uh, don't breathe too, I think was their first, uh, their first release. He, he, he had this idea of like a killer robot movie like a contained kind of tech industry killer robot film and i don't want to pitch too much about this because mm. this is an original project and i did write multiple drafts of the script and then i know fede and roto rewrote me so there is a script out there that that's i think is really good that could still get made so i don't want to spoil it but it was um it, it, like basically like uh the hook was that it was like the silicon valley company creating a medical robot to be embedded with troops um, and the night that they have to like really present it with the pen to the Pentagon, it'd be this like little run along Boston Dynamics robot, but it can't hurt anyone. All it can do is you know fix you, but put a cast on your arm, defibrillate you, give you you know a tracheotomy. And the night that they're all grinding to like really present the prototype, uh, my draft was called Beta. Uh, it's it's it has been retitled, 
um, mm-hmm. they were the, they were going to show this prototype to like these defense contractors. You know, they 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 kind of do a shutdown. Everyone's in the building, and the robot takes over the building and starts killing them in medical ways. Um, and so it was a is a slasher in like this crazy Silicon Valley smart building with a robot that is like interfacing directly with the building. So they can't get out in any of the normal ways. They have to either try to climb down from the roof and all this other stuff. And and um, and they're dealing with this robot that's designed to like soothe them. Um, and and like and, like like show you your like Facebook memories and stuff as it's killing you, because um, it's supposed to be like re- calming you on the battlefield oh, and stuff. Awesome. So we, I thought this was so. Cool. And Jason Eisner was attached to directors, oh. you know, because the very the very first thing was like Fede was like, "Would you want to do this?" I was like, "He's like, I'm thinking of trying to get Jason Eisner to direct." I was like, "Well, if you can get Jason Eisner to attach himself, then I will write it." And and Fede was like, and it was just this like, and Jason was like, "Well, Simon writes it, then I'm attached," and mm-hmm. and we had this like hot project but it had a price tag which was 10 million and we could never we could never quite get it to a 10 million budget and 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 that's that's a little bit on me you know i i i kept turning in my first drafts and everyone's like hey, this is like 12 15 million i think well yeah okay but then let's all put our brains together and figure out what set piece we to subtract so to subtract you know this is what adam and i do every movie like you know once 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 you tell me what things cost then we can figure out like is it, is it this sequence? Like, like one of these characters has to go, you know, I'm able to downsize things in a big picture way, especially at that budget level. Once you get to like 150 million, it's like all abstract. It's like, what are we talking <laughs> about here? You know, like 20, 20 VFX shots. Like, I don't understand. Is that a scene? Um, but, but like, you know, at the budget level of that movie, I could really talk to them. Uh, but, but I think, I think we just never got a draft that, that where the price tag made sense. And that was working with good universe and Lionsgate. And again, I think they were super excited to have their like killer robot franchise. I really loved the robot that like we created, which was supposed to be this like friendly, friendly buddy medical robot that was like really mm. scary. <laughs> um, and you know, and a big a big influence for for me was hardware. Um, I know I know Richard Stanley has proven to be to apparently be a terrible person, but like but in terms of robot horror, still good. Yeah, the movies. The movie's just, awesome. Yeah, I mean, like like Dust Devil and Hardware are both movies that like really made a huge impression on me. Hardware, especially. Mm-hmm. What I love about hardware is the fact that you see the robot transform over the course of the film. Like it, it's it's constantly turning itself into a scary robot. And there's a great um, Invader Zim episode called "Bad Bad Rubber Piggy," where uh, Zim's uh, Zim's going back and using a time machine to try to fuck up uh, Dib's life. And at a certain point, like 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 Dib in the present time keeps getting more and more fucked up until his father builds some robotic exoskeleton. And then you see that everything Zim throws into the time machine, he just gets another gun on his body. And I loved the idea that over the course of the movie, we would see this like friendly robot just turn itself into this like monstrous tank, basically just like grabbing any, like grabbing any equipment it can and just adding itself. So by the end of the movie, it would look completely insane. There were some really good gags in that movie, but ultimately it it was expensive. And yeah, I mean, we could have done it, but like we would have, yeah, that's, that's my latest, like, oh, man, that was a good script. I worked on that for a really long time. There were definitely some, like, vacations canceled because I wanted to, like, get the draft done, and I was grinding on it and mm. couldn't figure out a set piece. And and then you're like, oh, well, that's a big waste of time, you know. And, you know, look, I try to be more judicious about stuff. I try to not take stuff on, you know, that easily anymore because, you know, as I get older, I'm just not as fast as I used to be. I can't just, like sit down and crank out a script in a week the way that I used to. My, I think my work is a lot better, but 
sadly that comes at the cost of actually reading it, revising it. Yeah. 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 I'm no longer, I no longer have the confidence of my youth. Um, and, and I do think my work is better for it and, and more nuanced and possibly less, less just like mean spirited in terms of its humor, but it, but there's something to that. I think I just lost my mics. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, no. No, I still hear you. Okay, good. Good. Yeah. Wait, so you're, you're Butch and Sundance. Did you call it a <laughs> sequel? It was a sequel. It was called The Outlaws. They, they, they'd, they'd faked their deaths and survived. Oh, okay. it, was a very, it was a very sad script about kind of a, a unrequited romantic love between them. Um, you know, Pablo obviously is, is, you know, a director who has a really like specific way he likes to make his films. But grooving with him, you know, I went, I, I went down to Santiago to work with him for a bit. Um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. But then ultimately, uh, ultimately, that's another one where like, it wouldn't have been cheap, like, and, and we didn't want to do it cheap. You know, we wanted to do like a proper $40 million Western that started with like a train robbery and ultimately had like a big shootout at the end, um, big kind of wild bunch shootout with these old with these kind of sad old guys who just realized they wish they probably should have died a long time ago before they got any older and sadder. And uh, yeah, it was a really, it's a really sad, depressing Western. I know that like my manager, I have a manager and he says, that's my best script. So you, you always do have like these people in your life who've like been there long enough that they like are one of the, that script probably got seen by a couple dozen people because it, it actually got put in a turnaround a couple of times, mainly just because mm-hmm. of Pablo's career. He, you know, it started at Warner Brothers and I think died at Focus, um, which isn't on Focus. Like, thank you, Focus, for trying to, to, to make that movie. Um, you know, thank you, Warner Brothers, for trying to make that movie. <laughs> that was one where, you know, like it wasn't, it, it, you know, I, I got kind of paired with Pablo for a meeting and, and we really clicked. But I think the reason we clicked is because we both were like, man, I'm just like, I guess I'm at this point in my career where studios are off me. That's bullshit. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it. But like, I have this idea that's like a Butch Cassidy sequel. And I was like, look, I would only want to do that if it was completely depressing and uncommercial. <laughs> he was like, oh, okay. Actually, you know what? This writer is saying things that I'm interested in. Everyone else is telling me bullshit, but this guy's like, no, no, no. I'd only want to do that if we did it in like a way that like perversely did not deliver on anything anyone would want. <laughs> but, but like really said something profound about like just terminal loneliness. Um, and, and, and Pablo was, we were grooving on the same creative vibe, but ultimately I'm not sure I was a good enough writer at that point in time. And I certainly didn't have the career clout to really, you know, assert my perspective. And ultimately, you know, it's another one of these movies that, um, you know, maybe it's not dead, you know, again, that's the only project I've ever had, like really successfully go into turnaround where I was getting like a, a pittance of money when it went to turnaround. Like, you know, so I was like, oh, oh, wow. Someone is actually buying this from someone else amazing yeah, so who nice. knows it could it could still happen but i think pablo has kind of found his current niche well uh it sounds timeless like it can be it can you know turn oh, yeah. into something at any time but who i'm sorry i i missed what else did pablo do i didn't catch his last name well pablo lorraine he did his most recent film was spencer um with Kristen stewart he also did jackie oh, okay. with natalie portman he's a chilean filmmaker his his biggest movie kind of over here well probably jackie uh or spencer but uh he also did a film called no with gail garcia bernal which they shot on like old analog technology he's a very cool director uh oh, you know right he's on. he's got he's got he's got an awesome career as a director and a producer um at the very early stages of his career he did um was it tony romero or whatever just kind of like he, he he makes he made really kind of inf- interesting 
confrontational movies in Chile and still does. There's a movie called The Club, which is about a, a bunch of like priests that have like molested children being like isolated in a, in like a Chilean village, which is the kind of film that um, I think particularly people are offended by in, in Chile. Um, he, he definitely is not, you know, a filmmaker who's afraid to make bold choices. But because of that, you know, I think he's kind of also correctly realized, like, why would I want to be making big budget Hollywood movies when I can be doing whatever the fuck I want? And absolutely no one tells me what to do um, on these on these smaller movies. So, so no, yeah, I think I think honestly, that's probably where we're at. But hey, who knows? Maybe he just needs to win a couple more Oscars. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, but yeah, look, I mean, <laughs> there's that there's, that was called The Outlaws. Um, there's the killer robot movie with Jason Eisner. Those, those ones I truly do kind of mourn. Um, and that's because they were original. And even though they weren't totally like my original ideas, I was able to like groove with the filmmaker creatively enough to, I feel like get their original idea on the page in a way that we were really happy with. And the reasons those films didn't get made is just because we never quite got to the point where we were comfortable enough squeezing them into a price tag and and you know and you do feel kind of bad about that you wonder like is, you know are we doing the right thing and this is a situation where like you know like adam adam and i have a world war one movie which i'm not going to talk about in any detail but it's it's something we've been working on for over a decade and we're absolutely convinced we're going to make this film when the time is right uh which it hasn't been yet and and some of these you just never know like i had a i had a horror script that i wrote for myself to direct a small thing i wrote it back in 2018 and I'm leaving in a couple of weeks for Estonia to go see uh, my friend Evan Katz direct that movie. I'm a producer on it. And, you know, it was the kind of thing where I lost after doing VHS 94. I didn't want to do that anymore. He was like, well, can I direct it? And I was like, oh, I'd love it if you directed it. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's best case scenario for me, because then I don't have to do the work. Uh, but it still gets to be a movie. And, and awesome. we were able to get. Yeah, I mean, I, that was a script I was completely going to throw in the trash can. I had yeah. thrown it in the trash can. I had. I had forgotten it. I'd given up on it. It was something I was trying to do before seance. Um, and after doing seance and VHS night four, I had no creative interest left in doing another one of these fucking things. And, and whereas my friend Evan was like, I would love to do an indie harmony. So you just never know when something I, I've reached now the age in the film industry where dead projects sometimes like lurch back to life. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if like, you know, I saw the devil gets made or one of these movies gets made, you know, I mean, in a weird way, Adam making Godzilla versus Kong felt like our Skull Island movie coming to fruition, you know, 10, 12 years later in a really, really, really strange way. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and so now I'm at the point where like, I've, I've survived the industry long enough that like, occasionally I'm digging up old scripts and realizing that they're not complete trash, but mostly my old scripts are total garbage. And whenever I revisit and like, you know, I, I did, uh, Justin Moore, um, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, they edit that out. I fucking always get their names wrong. I just never been able to say their names correct on the first round. I always swap their last names. Um, so edit, edit Benson that and Moorhead. That's how Benson you're... and Moorhead. I sent them. I saw the Devil recently because they just wanted to read it, and I think they were kind of disappointed in it. Um, and like they were like, "Oh, this isn't like as good as your shit normally is." And I was like, "You know what? They're probably fucking right. It probably isn't just not a very good script." And I, you know, I thought I was doing a good job at the time, but I wasn't a good enough writer yet to really pull this thing off. And, you know, sometimes I do look back at my old scripts. I'm like, oh, I'm just so lucky this didn't get made because because <laughs> this would have been a career ender for me. It's total trash. Oh, 
I hope Beta can somehow work its way through the system. That's such a cool I concept. Have, I hope it does too. But you know, I mean, the, the funny thing is, like, that was when Fede was, I think, cranking up to produce a bunch of movies. He did Texas Chainsaw for Legendary. He did Don't Breathe too, and I think like. You know, last time I was talking to him, he was more into directing. Like, you know, I think like he's he's a director, and so, you know, I I know he's off doing doing something cool right now, and you know, I think mm-hmm. that's a tricky one because I think it really, it, it's one of those where like we'd have to all I guess agree to like let someone else take it over. But I don't know. I would love that because I think Jason Jason Eisner had a really great vision, and that's the kind of thing where like if someone could pick that up and put it in turnaround, you know, there's not much money against it, you know. I can, you know, that's the good thing about hiring me as a writer is when my project's going to turn around. No one, no one's been paid a lot of money to work on. Uh, well, I know you've got a, a big fun project you just came back from working on that you can't quite talk about yet, but yeah, not yet. But the things, hey, but I, but I definitely can't complain at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I'm off to do this thing with with Evan. Yeah, I'm not directing anything at the moment, but uh. You know, but I am seeing myself have a very good year as a screenwriter, which is, you know, I guess, I guess, I guess you really have to try to become a director to have any luck as a screenwriter. <laughs> well, where are you going again for the, I love Evan, by the way, he's awesome. But where, where is that again? Uh, Tallinn, Tallinn, Estonia. Still, I always know that place from where Encino Man is from, and I just never knew where it was exactly. Where? <laughs> yeah, no, Evan's been in Estonia for the past um He's been there for the past month working. I mean, I, I feel bad that I'm not out there working with him, but oh, I've, I've got to deliver some drafts. That's <laughs> because, like, uh, you know, in addition to the project that Adam is directing right now, he does have Face Off 2 and Thundercats. Um, and uh, and we do need to get those done because uh, nice. people people want us to make those too. So Face and, Off uh, 2 is still cooking along? Yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not maybe five years from now i'll be on this podcast to talk about how that fell apart but you know here's the thing if if face off 2 falls apart it's our own fault because we have been given so much creative freedom uh to shape that project the way we want to and we're so happy with the script uh and we've had so much fun working on it that you know if if, if that project falls apart it's, it's just because eventually someone like looks at what we're doing and is like well we can't let these guys do something like this crazy, right? <laughs> um, you know, but we're really like, like we, like I think the lesson that we learned from I Saw the Devil to tie this all up with a neat little bow is is genuinely, and, and really with Blair Witch, is genuinely like you have to be on the same side as the fans. And like, especially with something like Face Off 2, it's like, if it's not going to be perfect, then we shouldn't make it. And... I think that's been our attitude, like every step of the way, like, like we, we, we don't want to, we don't want to second guess anything. We kind of really just want to be like, we, we're not going to do this unless it's going to be really, really good and really justify its existence. Um, same with Thundercats, you know, it, as soon as those projects don't feel right, you know, like, like I, it feels like they wouldn't, they'll stop moving forward because, you know, the good thing about those is that we've kind of helped, you know, those weren't projects that people brought to us. Those were projects that we've chased after and gradually convinced people to give to us. Um, and that's a totally different feeling uh, as, a, as a writer. It's a totally, it's much more exciting. Um, yeah. It, 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 no, I mean, really, like, like we were able to use Adam's kind of career success and get attached to a couple of properties that we really feel like we have something cool to do with. Uh, and that's ideally, I guess, how you do it going forward. 
Yeah, dude, that's cool, man. Because Thundercats has been—I have a script, one of the unmade scripts. Yeah, I think it's been floating around for a while. So that'd be awesome if you guys can bring that up, bring that. To yeah, life. yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, Adam, Adam wrote a, a feature Thundercats script when he was in high school. Oh, nice. That, that I've never—I haven't seen it, but it's like 250 <laughs> pages. It's like the first feature script he ever wrote, and it's like, and it's like, and, and I mean, yeah, this is not something that like he's been talking about making a Thundercats movie for as long as I've known it. Like, like Adam would absolutely rather make a Thundercats movie than a Star Wars movie. No, no fucking question. Like, like, I mean, yeah. So this is a passion. Pro- this and Face Off 2 are huge passion projects for us. So, That's like, so cool. I'm hesitant to even talk about them because it's like, I get so like sincere, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's just like, it's difficult. That's dope. I remember, like, I think con like uh, two minutes of concept came. They were going to do a CGI movie on it, and it fell apart. Mm-hmm. And they released yeah, like yeah, a couple can, of minutes you can look of that. On yeah, yeah, but but anyway, yeah, that, that's been around. I'm, that's cool to hear. So no, no, I mean, I you know, and and it's funny because um, you know, you can see that Thundercats kind of makes sense as a movie, but you can also once you start digging in, you're like, okay, I get also why why no one has really like cracked this totally yet. Hopefully it's us, but you know, again, yeah. if, if not, then, you know, then, then we've just been paid to think about Thundercats for a couple of years and that's cool too. <laughs> it, it's not like I saw the devil be. where like, I'm just like, damn it. Like, oh, now yeah. I just have to talk about this for the rest of my fucking life. That's, a, that's <laughs> awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's Thank a you. great place to wrap things up. Thank yeah. you, Simon. Uh, I recommend everyone follow Simon on Twitter. Um, I am a increasingly grumpy old asshole, and I have a weird pet peeve of filmmakers posting like cheese ball aspirational like creative advice. And I feel Simon always has some great kind of <laughs> teetering that line of ironic, uh, almost satire of uh, such you know, posts. Yeah, I really just like can't do that myself. You know, like I don't, I don't have a healthy relationship to my work. So I, 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 I don't, I think, it, I think it is helpful. I don't know. I, I guess to me, it is helpful to hear from people I know who are successful, or at least able to make a living doing what they do. And For whatever like, reason, Cargill's the one that I'm like, I like his posts. I like Cargill's, uh, maybe because mm-hmm. success came so late in life for him. It, it feels like really genuine, not just uh, people being kind of self-serving and wanting to feel like they give great advice. I, I like him. <laughs> you <laughs> know, <lot>. like <laughs> his posts drive me crazy. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I know that he's sincere, but it's also this like, like if you write one hour a day for the rest of the year, you'll have a novel at the end of the year. Just, just write, just do it. I'm like, fuck, man. I, I like it's. It's just not that simple. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, exactly. Like, just, the point being, if people. Uh, I want that kind of take from ironic screenwriting advice. You should follow both of us, basically. Yes. Follow follow me. <laughs> I don't I don't really post anymore and follow him for like the sincere, the sincerely <laughs> like genuinely inspirational stuff that will actually like be of benefit to you. <laughs> uh, um, and you can find us on Twitter at Never Made Film and Best Movies Never Made on Instagram. We also recommend that you check out the Electric Now app to watch video of the, all the podcasts on the Electric Surge network. We'd like to thank everyone at the network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Stephen Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.